This evening's scripture is from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. For you you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all tonight. We're dismissing our first and second graders now to head down for class this evening. We're continuing in our series uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and tonight we're going to look at the verses that Andrew just read for us. This is from 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, verses 1 through 8. We'll talk about some verses after that as well. But uh, tonight what I'd like to talk about is uh, the importance of being entrusted with the gospel. Uh, The gospel is information at one level. The gospel is information that we need to share with people, but to be entrusted with the gospel, does that mean that we just have information to share with people, or does it mean something else on top of that? Uh, We live in a time that's pretty information-rich. There's a lot of information that's available to us. How many of you are like me, and you're old enough to remember what the old card catalog was like at the library? If you wanted information, you had to go somewhere to get it most of the time. It's pretty amazing how much information you can get at your fingertips while sitting in pajamas and eating Cheetos on the couch these days. In the old days, you actually had to go get the information. You had to go hunt for it. What's interesting, though, is I think on the one hand, hand, uh, information is very, very available to us. But how many of you would say that you have a high, high degree of confidence in the information that's available to you online? I'm, I'm asking genuinely, how many of you have a very high sense of confidence in the information that's available online? Not very many hands. We struggle to be able to trust information that comes at us nowadays. How many of you have ever felt, you know, it's January 1st, you really want to buckle down on your diet, you're like, I'm going to do it, and you start looking, and you're like, well, one article tells me to eat this way, and another article tells me to eat this way. Which one do I do? Which one do I do? Uh, I've felt like that's a difficult thing in my own life. Um, in my years, I remember like my family, my dad had a heart attack around age 53 when he was 53. And there was this really major push to try and eat healthy. And so all of a sudden, my family had skim milk in the refrigerator. And I was like, what is this abomination? Like, <laughs> if I wanted water, I would get water from the tap. This is milk water. This is not milk. Um, And then all of a sudden, the keto diet came out recently. And I'm like, I've been keto all along. (laughs) Lots of fat, I'm on board. I've been been killing it with keto for a very long time. I've been eating healthy, all all the burgers and fries and 
cheese on top of it. It's, I just didn't know that I could call it keto. And as you can tell, it's working well. <laughs> Have you ever noticed Jim Gaffigan, so much of his comedy is just him touching his belly? It's, <laughs> he is also the king of keto. But it's hard to trust information. There's all this information out there. And at some level, sometimes what we deal with is, can I trust the person or the organization that's giving me this information? Now, at one level, part of it's, you know, with research nowadays, we're trying to figure out what is true. Studies are doing a really good job of trying to narrow in on what is, what is true. I appreciate a lot of people who are doing really good research to help us know what is healthy for the body, what is true, how do we understand what's going on with the body. But when it comes to social issues, when it comes to um, even philosophical issues, um, all kinds of things we think about, there's information that comes at us from a lot of different sources And sometimes we struggle to trust information, not just because we ask the question, is this true? We live in an era where we also wonder, what is the intent of the person who's sharing this information with me? We live in a time when people want a lot from us. Uh, A lot of people will call you up and they want something from you. I was in office hours uh, over in Gilmar Hall this last week. Um, and students never come to office hours, so I had vast swaths of time to get stuff done. So I'm getting stuff done, and I get this phone call, and I answer it, and somebody says, hello, is Matt there? And I said, no. He goes, well, I got you. Let me talk to you. And I was like, who are you? I'm not the person you called for, but you still want me? I wanted to know if you'd, like, give to our cause. I was like, I don't even know you. You didn't know me. Like, you're calling somebody else, and you want to still see if I'll give to your cause. People want stuff from us, and sometimes what happens is we live in a world where information is given to us, But we wonder, what do they want from us? And so sometimes that piece can make it really hard for us to trust people and trust what they're saying. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, we live in a a time when there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people, they hear Christianity, they hear the truth of the gospel, but they're used to people sharing information and maybe wanting something from them and wondering, can I really trust you? And so tonight... Paul wants to talk to us about what it means to be entrusted with the gospel, to be entrusted with the message that is true, but how to be entrusted with that gospel in such a way that we live in a way that when we share that with other people, they can trust our motivation. They know why we're sharing that with them. Lord, we're so grateful to you tonight for the good news that Jesus has come into this world. I want to thank you that by grace you've come into this world to rescue us from our sin. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you that you've come into this world to promise everlasting life and to usher in your kingdom. And we just pray, Lord God, that you would teach us tonight. And we pray that your kingdom would come among us, that we'd experience not only grace, but Lord, we would also experience the power of your spirit among us, moving in us. Pray that you would convict us and challenge us and draw us in, Lord God, not only to the joys of your mercy and grace for our sin, but Lord, to the call you have on our lives to be stewards of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll start in verse uh, 1. Now I get, Brooks, this is for you. It's not working for me tonight, so you're not the only one. That's the most Pentecostal I've ever heard, Brooks. I knew you were a brother. All right, so Rachel, if you can just forward it for me, would that be all right? She's like, no, I'm not going to do it. So, um... 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4, where we go from here is that uh, Paul has already been talking to us, blessed assurance. It helps to have the the flash drive, actually, in the computer. So Paul has been talking to us in chapter 1 about 
the, the fact that the Thessalonians had placed their faith in the gospel. When Paul originally went to the church in Thessalonica, he shared the gospel and they received it. And he spends this whole chapter in chapter one uh, thanking God for how they received the good news. But then, thank you, Rachel, all of a sudden in chapter two, there's this transition. Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So here's a shift. Chapter one, he's thanking God for how the Thessalonians first received the good news, the gospel message that he preached. Now in chapter two, he's shifting. He's trying to tell them, hey, look, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God and trusted with the gospel, now we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's saying, I want you to know the intentions of my motivation. I want you to understand my motivation in coming to you and delivering the gospel message. Why does Paul make this shift? I think the reason Paul makes this shift is because Paul had preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. They received it. But then Paul had to leave. Persecution got so strong in Thessalonica, as Acts 17 tells us, Paul then has to leave Thessalonica. The brothers send him away under cover of night because persecution was so bad. So Paul's gone, and he's wondering how the congregation is doing. And part of what he wants to say to this congregation is he's writing to them. He hears that they're thriving in the gospel, but he wants to tell them, continue to trust me. Paul feels like he has to defend uh, his authenticity and defend his motivation uh, as, a, as a preacher of the gospel to them, he has to defend his credibility. And I think the reasons are, uh, there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. Scholars aren't all agreed on, on why it might be the case, but it's clear that he sensed he had to defend his credibility. It could have been that some of the Thessalonian Christians were thinking, Paul preached this gospel to us, but now he's abandoned us. Should we trust him? Some of them might have been thinking, is Paul like these other traveling teachers Some of them may be Christian, but some of them may be Roman, uh, Greco-Roman traveling teachers who come into a town and they butter up their listeners so they can take an offering or they try and gain this following to have fame and glory. Is Paul like one of those and he's gotten as much glory as he wants from us now he's gone? Or it could have been that there are some opponents, maybe some Jewish figures, maybe some Greco-Roman figures who are saying to the Thessalonian Christians, you know, Paul came to you and he preached this gospel and it's nice that you believe in him, but do you really trust him? Are you really going to follow this small group of Christians instead of uh, continuing in the Greco-Roman faith like most of the rest of the people in Thessalonica? So it could have been that they were facing some uh, challenge from other voices outside of the church, but it Regardless of what the specific reason it is, Paul is focused on defending his credibility and his trustworthiness with the Thessalonians. And the big thing we want to draw out here is that Paul's not concerned about whether uh, people are clicking like enough on his Facebook page. (laughs) He's not concerned about whether uh, people are loyal to him uh, so that he can feel good about himself. Paul's not concerned about whether he's getting enough honor or esteem. Paul's concern is if they don't trust me, if they don't consider me credible, they're going to abandon the gospel 
And that terrifies me to think of them abandoning the gospel. Paul knows that there's a deep, deep connection between them trusting him as a messenger and whether they'll continue in the gospel. Do you see that connection? There's a deep connection between the messenger and the credibility of the messenger, the trustworthiness of the messenger, and the messenger delivered. And Paul knows that they understand that connection, and he wants to defend his trustworthiness so that they'll continue to embrace the gospel, even amidst ongoing persecution and challenge. So notice what Paul does here. Paul says, our appeal does not spring from error. The first thing he wants to say is, our message is true. You can trust us because our message is true. Why trust Paul? Because his message is true. But what's interesting is Paul didn't spend a lot of time in chapter 2 demonstrating how the gospel is true and reliable as a truth claim. He could have done that. There are times when we have to do that. Have you ever talked with somebody about the gospel and they're like, it sounds great, but can I believe this? Is it true? And we have to talk about the truth of Christianity. But that's not what Paul does here. Another thing is that Paul points out that he's approved by God. He says, uh, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Paul could have said, look, I have been called by God. The risen, resurrected, and ascended Jesus came to me on the road to Damascus, knocked me on my feet, off of my feet, and confronted me and then called me to be a messenger of the good news. And you need to recognize that I'm called by God. But he doesn't spend a lot of time there trying to say, look, I have divine authority. Talk about a trump card. (laughs) He doesn't do that. What Paul does is he spends most of the time in chapter 2 trying to demonstrate, I didn't come to you with impure motives or with any attempt to deceive. That's where he spends most of his time. And what it reminds us is that there is this intimate connection, an intimate connection between being a messenger of the gospel and the message itself. This is not just disseminating information. When we share the gospel, it matters who that is coming from. It matters how we live. So what does Paul mean when he says that he's been entrusted with the gospel? It's entrusted with a message, but it's also entrusted with a particular way to live, to embody the gospel. Not just sharing this information, but being a living example of the gospel. So let's see how Paul spells this out. So he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 6, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So he says, first of all, you can tr- why trust Paul? Because I didn't flatter the Thessalonians in an effort to get rich. He didn't butter them up with flowery and kind of uh, nice words so they'd feel good about themselves. You know, if somebody butters you up, they're often going to ask for something, right? Uh, husbands, this is not a great way to kind of like pave a way in your relationship, uh, to butter up your wife, to get something back. Uh, Paul knows that in his day, there were a lot of traveling teachers who were prone to do this. They would travel, they would tickle the ears of their audience, they would butter them up in the hopes that once they have flattered the audience, the audience would be like, okay, I'll give you some money. There were a lot of traveling, traveling teachers that did this, and Paul wants to say, I didn't do this. I did not flatter you And the point is because I didn't want to become financially rich off of you. I I had no financial gain among you. Another thing Paul says, next verse is, 
nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul's point is here, we didn't come among you trying to get a big reputation, to become famous or to become like a rock star. Some, some scholars have said if you look at these traveling uh, teachers in the Greco-Roman world, they're often kind of like equated with rock stars or Hollywood celebrities. They could go into a town, they would teach, people would be really excited about them, and people would be really drawn to them, and they'd have this great reputation. Paul says, that was not my goal. We did not come to seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. What's really interesting here is he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What Paul is saying is, we are apostles of Christ. God has called me specifically to be an apostle, to carry the gospel to all of these non-Jewish folks. This is like a new phase in the era of the church, and Paul has been given this great and glorious task to take the gospel to non-Jewish ears for the first time. And so he has divine kind of commission, and that gives him some status, you would think, in God's economy. And in some ways, this gives Paul great, great authority. Paul said, we could have made demands among you as apostles of, of Christ, meaning we have this divine commission. And we could have said, look, you need to recognize that we are called and commissioned of God. But he didn't do that. He didn't demand that the Thessalonians revere him and honor him. Instead, what did Paul do? So if he didn't flatter them for the sake of financial gain, and if he didn't seek fame or accolades or honor among them, even though he had some right to do that, what did Paul do? Paul, you're telling us a lot of things you didn't do. Did you do anything in Thessalonica? He did, and he spells that out. He says in verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Why trust Paul? It's not just that he avoided flattering them for the sake of financial gain. It's not just that he avoided uh, seeking glory and accolades and fame. It's that in a positive sense, he sacrificially loved them. He sacrificially served them so that they could know Paul has nothing to gain from this personally. He is really seeking our well-being. Because he loved them so sacrificially and served them so extremely, they would have no question about what his motivation was. They could maybe disagree with his message, but they could not have any grounds for disagreeing or questioning his motives for preaching to them. He says, I was gentle. What does it look like? Specifically, gentle among you like a nursing mother. Are we all agreed that Paul is using a metaphor here, right? Paul did not unleash his, his holy and sacred spiritual breast to nourish these children. This is a metaphor. So what does that even mean? That Paul's saying he's gentle among them. Tangibly, what this looks like is that as he shared the gospel with them, he also shared his own life. He said, we shared our own selves. As he spells that out even further, what it means to share our own selves is he said, we didn't take up an offering. We worked, we toiled night and day to provide for our own needs so that we wouldn't take up an offering from among you. And how, how did that likely happen? It probably happened that Paul's in the marketplace working shoulder 
to shoulder with other Thessalonians as he's working at his craft and trade to make a means for himself while he's in Thessalonica. As he's working with his hands to make money for himself, he's in the marketplace shoulder to shoulder with other Thessalonians while they're working, and he has a chance to share the gospel with them, but he's also just sharing in the labor of the day. Sharing his own self with them. Some of you work shoulder to shoulder with people in the marketplace every day. And in some ways, that makes you more similar to Paul than me. And more similar to Paul than Jason, since we work on staff here at a church. Some of you actually have an opportunity to do some of the things that Paul was doing in your workplace with non-believers. So Paul says, we labored and toiled among you so as not to be a burden. Now, scholars say there are two ways that uh, burden is, is understood. One is, we wouldn't be a financial burden on you. But Paul also said, we labored and toiled in such a way so that we wouldn't be a burden upon you in terms of expecting honor and accolades. So Paul's saying, we weren't trying to be a burden on you financially, and we weren't trying to get you to, to uh, pat us on the back, give us a big attaboy, say, way to go, give us accolades. Paul says, we were really trying to just serve you so we could have the privilege and honor of sharing the gospel with you and so that you would know that we love you and that you can trust our intentions in sharing the gospel. And in some ways, Paul's, Paul's even laying down a right here. He said we had the right to maybe, as apostles, to demand that you would respect our position of authority as divinely called. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 talks about how he took financial support from established churches in order to be a missionary in other contexts. And so Paul here is even saying, I laid down that privilege. I could have taken up an offering, but I've laid that aside as well. So how does Paul defend the authority of his message It's through loving selflessness, through loving sacrifice, by demonstrating through self-sacrifice and service that he loves the Thessalonians and is seeking their well-being and not his own gain. So this is really interesting. Where does Paul's authority come from? At one level, it comes from the truthfulness of the gospel. If the gospel is not true, Paul has zero authority, right? Like he can say anything he wants, but if the gospel is not true, it doesn't have any authoritative claim on somebody's life. But the gospel is true, and so that gives Paul some authority. He's also divinely called by God, and that gives him authority. But at a deep level here, he's saying, I have to demonstrate my credibility as a messenger of the gospel. And I've done that through sacrificial love and service. So Paul, this is really, this one is really interesting to me. Paul's authority comes from God from the top down. But for other people in Thessalonica to respect that and to receive that, how does he earns that, right? His authority comes from the top down. But for other people to receive that, he serves them and loves them in such a way that they will respect his motivation and honor that and then maybe receive the gospel. So his authority comes from top down. But for it to be received, it's received from the bottom up as he's serving people in love and self-sacrifice. And they trust his motivation and are more apt to trust the credibility of his message. That has less to do with authority and has more to do with authenticity. And authenticity has to do with us loving and sacrificing to care for others. So they know we care about them as we share the gospel with them. What does it mean to be entrusted with the gospel? It's to be entrusted with the message, but it's also to have this high and holy calling to love and serve others in such a way that it demonstrates that we are committed to their good, to their well-being. So who's entrusted with the gospel? Uh, certainly Paul is really entrusted with the gospel. There's no doubt. 
Again, in Acts, Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus and said, you are going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul has this very, very special and very pronounced call to be entrusted with the gospel. But I don't feel like I'm a Paul. Jesus did not appear to me on the road to Sedalia in Missouri and tell me you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I kind of had to meander and figure out what God's call on my life is. And still to this day, I'm like, God, what would you have for me next year? I don't know. So I don't feel like I have the same clear call. And you might feel the same way. Am I entrusted with the gospel? You might have that question. So we might not be called in the way that Paul was called, but all Christians are entrusted with the gospel in different ways. All of us are entrusted with the gospel. So here in uh, 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, at the time that Paul is trying to defend his credibility, he wants the Thessalonians to believe him. At the same time that he's doing that, he's also giving them an example to imitate. So he's not just telling them, here's how you can trust me. He's saying, here's how you can trust me in the gospel that I've shared with you. But I also want you to understand you need to imitate this example as well. He's calling ordinary Christians to follow in his example. Not just trust him, but to also learn a lesson. In Colossians 3.16, Paul tells us in that book that we're all to uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly within us. That's code for like, let the gospel dwell richly within us. But how do we do that? We do that by teaching and admonishing one another. Every single one of us has been entrusted with the gospel to admonish and teach and encourage one another in the gospel, right? We do that at community group. We do that when we get together for Bible study and over coffee. All of us are entrusted to share the gospel with other believers. And then 1 Peter 3.15, we're told uh, we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have within. If somebody asks us, why do you have hope in the face of so much turmoil in life and in the face of death, we can tell them we have hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us are entrusted to share that message with people who don't yet know Christ when they ask us about our faith. Every single Christian is entrusted with the gospel. Maybe not like Paul, but we're all entrusted with the gospel. To share it with other believers, and also to share it with those that we come into contact with who don't yet know Jesus. So what this means is that while we are all entrusted with this gospel, we need to know how to share it, what the gospel is, but then we also have this holy calling to love other people so that they trust our motivation when we share the gospel with them. In my life, um, my life has been this constant like ebb and flow of learning how to do this better and then and failing at it and really realizing I need to grow at it and asking the Lord for forgiveness and growing in some ways and then still struggling in other ways. One time I really struggled with it was in college. I worked on a survey crew. I loved this job, got to work outside all day long, had a really good group of guys that I got to work with. And uh, this one guy was, was a friend of mine. He was also in college, wasn't a Christian. And we got into a conversation about religion and I was trying to share the gospel with him. And at some point, he was like, I don't agree with you. And in the course of the conversation, instead of me trying to respond to his objections in love, I don't know how it happened exactly, but it was very clear to me by the end of this conversation, my motivation was not trying to share the gospel message with him in love. My motivation had transitioned into, I need to be right and win this argument. Have you ever been there? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been there? All of a sudden, it has turned less into, I love 
this person and I want to see them thrive spiritually. I want them to know God's grace. I want them to experience eternal life. It transitions from loving them to I've got to, I've got to beat their argument. I've kind of got to win and beat them. And that's exactly where I found myself. And my friend knew that. He sensed that. He knew that somehow or another in the course of this conversation, love had stalled out. Love had stopped. And, it, and then it hurt our relationship. And it was hard for me to be able to share the gospel with him if he sensed that I wasn't loving him. And it took some time over the course of that summer for that relationship to heal. Not, not like it was terrible, uh, but I had to work on that. Now, there was another time I was at work a few years later, and a uh, totally different job, even in a different city, and uh, had a good friend there. He had grown up in the church. He was Christian as a kid, but had kind of wandered from the faith. He'd had some questions about Christianity and had uh, decided to no longer practice Christianity. And he also had, like, come to embrace some activities that he was not ready to, to give up. He was like, I'm not ready to follow Jesus just yet. Because if I have to follow Jesus, and I know that means at least trying to leave these sins behind, I'm just not done having my fun yet. And he was honest about that with me. So I disagreed with him. I was like, you know, I think what God has for you, he wants you to experience his grace and his forgiveness, and he wants you to experience the joy of walking in holiness. Holiness is hard, but it's actually a joy, and he wants you to experience that. And so I disagreed with him, but I was able to do that in love by the grace of God. And some of the ways that showed up was continuing to disagree with him, but disagreeing with him in love. And the love showed up by saying, let's have lunch together on me. Let's just go out and hang out. Sometimes that meant when he would come to talk to me about how his weekend was, I was like, I've got a pile of work that I need to get to, and I will get to it by the time I go home. And it's going to be hard for me to get to some of that. But if making time in my day to listen to how his weekend went and care for him, if making that sacrifice in my day lets him know that I care for him, I'm going to do that. If I have to stick around after work a little bit to make up some extra work, I'll do that if that means making time in my life for my friend. And over the course of uh, my time working there, it's not that he placed his faith in Jesus during that time, but our relationship was very, very strong. I was able to be honest with him about the gospel and have disagreements with him, but it didn't kill the relationship. And he knew that I cared for him. And I remember uh, several years later, I was in small group, a community group one night at our house, and I got this text, and I was like, who's texting me during group? And I happened to look down, and it was my friend from work. He, just, he said, I wanted to let you know that I've placed my faith in Jesus, and I've started to get back into church, and I just wanted to thank you for loving me when we worked together years ago. Loving people sacrificially, and it's not like I did a ton. I'm not up here to brag. small things, going out to lunch with him, making time in my life for him, caring for him, texting him, saying, hey, you talked to me about stuff being hard this last week, and how are you doing now? Taking the initiative to care for somebody. That kind of sacrifice and love helps people to trust the message that we have to share with them. And the same is true in community group, like when we're needing to encourage one another in the gospel. How many of you would say, there are some times when somebody needs to share a truth with me, Part of the good news is not just hearing of God's grace, but God's call to live in holiness and to leave certain things behind. And sometimes you need somebody to hold you accountable. And if they have loved you and you know that they love you, you can hear their hard truth, right? But if you don't know that somebody loves you, it's hard to hear a hard truth from them, right? I tell you, somebody who does that for me is Jason. 
I feel I'm so blessed to be able to work with Jason because I, can, I know I can go to him and say, lay the hard truth on me and I can receive it because I know he loves me. He's demonstrated that to me. So this really matters. There are a lot of different ways that love and self-sacrifice and service make the gospel more believable. When people understand our motive, that we love them and care for them, they're ready to trust what we have to say. When we sacrifice of our time, when we sacrifice of our emotional energy to include someone in our life and care for them, that helps them to trust when we say God loves them and Jesus has been sacrificed to save you and to redeem you. It's like what we have done for them is a small little illustration of what Christ has done for them. The life of love and sacrifice that we demonstrate to people it's not just information, it's a force for transforming lives. When, when we actually love people and care for them, it shows them that the gospel is not just information, but it transforms and shapes us. This is not just the conveyance of information. We share the gospel and it comes from a transformed life where we're actually loving other people. People say, well, I'm hearing about God loving and forgiving sinners and transforming sinners. And this person has loved me in a way that seems to be evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. There are a lot of ways that this kind of life causes the gospel to be taken more seriously. So I want to be really, really honest here. This is a message that I am not just preaching to you all, okay? Uh, this is a message that I constantly need to hear and grow in myself. Uh, and I want to say I'm encouraged by how many of you actually sacrificially love and serve one another and do that outside the walls. And I want to encourage you to do that more and more. And I want to just let you know that I'm growing in that too. There are actually many days when I go home at the end of the day and I feel like I have not been able to serve this congregation as much as I would like to. There are times I look back on the course of a month or two months and I'm like, ah, I actually feel like I failed this person at sacrificing my time for them. So I don't want you to think that this is a message that I think I have mastered and I'm preaching down to you all. <laughs> This is a message where I need to hear it myself as well. And may the Lord help us to grow in this, to love one another so that we can continue to love and encourage one another with the good news of the gospel, but also so that we can be in a better position to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. As we begin to close, I want to point out one thing, that Paul's motivation, what changed his motivation why was he focused on loving the Thessalonians this way? I think there are two things. First of all, in the text itself, it says uh, in verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, it says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please who? God, who tests our hearts. When we remember that God is going to evaluate our hearts, he evaluates our motives that makes a difference. When I remember that God is going to evaluate whether I've cared for people uh, genuinely or not, that helps me to take seriously that I need to love and care for people. When I take seriously that God is going to judge my heart, whether I've loved people in a way that's like, I really want someone to pat me on the back for how well I did. I want glory for how I'm serving at church or how I'm leading at small group 
or how I'm teaching. If we want glory, and, but we remember, you know what? God is going to judge that motivation. All of a sudden, remember, I don't want to try and take God's glory. I also don't want to use God's people to try and uh, gain a reputation. It puts us in a position to actually love people better when we remember God is going to evaluate our hearts. It's a sobering thought, but it's a thought that drove Paul and Paul thought was worth mentioning. But I think something he doesn't mention here, he mentions elsewhere, is also very foundational for Paul. One of the reasons Paul wants to please God is not just out of the sense of fear that God will judge his heart. Paul also wants to please, he wants to please God. It's not, I'm afraid of God, right? I want to please God. Why would Paul want to please God? 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, I think make that clear. This is 1 Timothy 1. Verses 12 through 17, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and what? Glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul wants to give Christ and God glory. He wants to please this God. Why? Because this God has richly saved him by grace. When we remember God has saved us by grace, God has loved us, it causes us to have this motivation to want to please him, to want to glorify him, to want to honor him. And that puts us in a position to want to love people well because that will honor and glorify him. The gospel changes our hearts and puts us in a position to actually want to love people well so that God would be glorified and so that others would be blessed. The gospel changes us to actually be able to do this. So tonight, what I'd like to leave us with is not some high and heavy-handed message about here's how you need to on your own, just like pull yourselves up, Find the strength to really sacrifice and love people well. Yes, we need to do that. But it should be rooted in remembering God's sacrifice on our behalf and be motivated by a desire to please him and to honor him for all that he has done for us by grace. And then ultimately then to get to a point where we want to love people in a way that God has loved them. As the worship team comes up, we're gonna sing a song to praise the Lord tonight for his grace for us. I want to say one final thing, which is that sometimes we can think of this like loving Christian, being a loving Christian and a sacrificial Christian is something we do as like PR to try and sell a message. It can't be that. If that's what it turns into, we're, we're dropping the ball. What this is, is like getting to a point where we are genuinely driven with love for other people. Genuinely driven to love other people in the way that God has richly loved us. And the good news is that because of God's grace and God's transforming power, he can work that in us. So God, we want to come to you and ask that you would work that in us. First and foremost, Lord God, if we need to be reminded of your grace and just take joy in your grace 
if we need a new and fresh love for your glory and your majesty that comes from a new, fresh sense of how much you've loved us graciously and mercifully, I pray that you would just stir that in our hearts tonight. Make that a reality for us. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be entrusted with the gospel, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who had all power and all authority and yet stooped to wash the disciples' feet and to love them and to serve them. Help us to follow in Paul's footsteps to not only share the gospel verbally, but to be able to lay down our lives to serve one another and serve those outside the church. And we just pray, Lord God, that through these humble efforts, as you help us to grow in this, all of us together, as you help me to grow in this, that, Lord, more and more people would hear the good news, that we would grow in the good news as a body, that we would grow in maturity. Lord, it would praise you. But, Lord God, that others that don't know you would hear the good news and receive the good news And also experience love from your people. Genuine, real love from your people that is just a small taste of your even greater love for sinners. We pray that you would work all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.